the first guy that taught me, taught my first class on the Middle East that I ever studied, so he's known me since I was like this tall. Um, you were still taller than me. <laughs> a few months ago in Iraq, the senior Shia leaders of the Popular Mobilization Forces, the PMF, were gathering for a meeting, and one among them was the leading Sunni PMF commander. When the men broke for prayer, uh, Hadi Al-Amari, who was head of the Shia Badr militia, noticed that the Sunni commander was, was uh, sitting down, he didn't get up, and he said, why don't you join us? And the Sunni guy said, I don't pray, and they were trying to push him to go pray with him. And he finally said, look, if I was the kind of Sunni that prayed, I wouldn't be with you, I'd be with ISIS. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to make too much of that anecdote, but I'll explain why it matters a little bit later. Um, in policy circles today, in the West, D.C. especially, it's, it's commonly argued that only a Sunni force can defeat the Islamic State. It's likewise argued that the Islamic State can't be defeated as long as Assad is president, just as it was as long as Maliki uh, was prime minister because they're magnets for jihadis, because the U.S. needs its Sunni allies against ISIS, it needs Sunni boots on the ground against ISIS, and that Sunnis feel like they've lost everything and are oppressed. Um, so these are all very flawed notions and very dangerous. They depend on what one means when one says Sunni or Arab, and they rely on false premises. Um, if promoted, will continue to pose a grave danger to the, to the region. There is a major crisis within Sunni identity and even defining what it means to be Sunni and who is a Sunni, because Sunni and Shia aren't stable categories, although increasingly sects have come to be viewed in the region or even, even in the West as a fixed ethnic group or a race. So my history of the, of the sectarianism begins in 2003, you can see that it's egocentric because that's the arbitrary, arbitrary date when I landed in the Middle East for the first time instead of working in Iraq. But I prefer to view 2003 not as a big bang, like Bassam said, but as um, the geopolitical equivalent of the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. Um, that asteroid killed off species and created new species. So, um, likewise, in the Middle East, the whole ecosystem was changed as a result of uh, this U.S. asteroid that hit the region. New identities were created, old ones died, and every day in the Middle East still, I, I, without exception, I can feel some of the aftershocks and tremors of that. Everything changed, and this new idea, this new identity called the Sunni Arab was manufactured. And I've lived through uh, the impact of 2003 on the region. Um, now, rather than making the area that was discussed last night uh, about blaming age-old uh, sort of eternal hatreds, I'm going to err in the other direction and focus largely on external factors and blame the U.S., a bit more than I should, uh, because others can talk about, or have talked about, the indigenous uh, history. Now, obviously, the Americans didn't introduce sectarianism to Iraq, or the Iraqi opposition. Saddam's faith campaign in 1993 was an anti-Salafi campaign in part. And religious Shias were treated with suspicion in Iraq, going back to the Iranian Revolution, thought before. And in April 2003, when I was going down from Baghdad to Karbala, I was surrounded by a Shia militia in some village south of Baghdad, they were all armed to the teeth, and they were terrified of Wahhabis coming up and massacring Shias, something which hadn't happened since the 19th century. So there was a, a very real fear right from the beginning. But the nature of the American occupation, the winners and losers it created, the American military posture in Sunni areas, or as opposed to Shia areas, the American notion of, of ourselves, that we were like World War II uh, soldiers liberating Shia Jews from the Sunni Nazis, that all had tremendous ramifications on the development of post-war Iraq. Um, in retrospect, so too the decision of many Iraqi Sunni leaders to boycott the occupation and, and its new, new systems and new structures. They basically wrote themselves out of, uh, of Iraqi history. 
Um, and the mass arrests of the Americans were committing in Sunni areas, the rise of Shia militias to defend themselves from the Zarqawi style attacks. So from day one of the occupation, a pervasive sense of lawlessness was created, and looting and militias literally from the first day, ethnic militias, tribal militias, sectarian militias, just because the state had collapsed. Um, and as uh, this new Shia uh, power rose in Iraq, you had, of course, um, the 2005 statements about Shia Crescent, about and Mubarak saying that Shias are fifth column for, for Iran. Um, the killing of Hariri in Beirut in, in uh, 2005, he became a Sunni regional figure, which he hadn't been before. The Hezbollah victory in 2006 over Israel created the specter that many uh, Gulf monarchies were afraid of, of a, of a popular Shia movement, followed just a few months later by the execution of Saddam, where everybody took down their uh, Nasrallah posters and put up the Saddam, the Shahid al-Adha posters, um, the Saddam execution still had reverberations. I mean, that was, he, he was recreated as a Sunni leader overnight, and uh, that was one of the real breaking points in Sunni-Shia relations in the region. And the death of Zarqawi, where he, he too was uh, turned into a, a martyr, 2007-2008 tensions in, in, in Lebanon between Hezbollah and other movements, climaxing with the Arab uprisings, which were like a tsunami that followed the asteroids of 2003, um, and sectarian relations were basically never to be repaired. Um, there was an attempt from 2003 to delegitimize Shias as non-Arabs, Shias as Safavis, as Persians, their loyalty to Iran, um, and following Iraq there was also a concerted effort in the Arabic language media to create a new student identity. You had Gulf-based channels blasting 24 hours a day the most dehumanizing sort of Nazi-like notions of Jews, but they were about Shias and Alawis, um, satellite TV, internet, all facilitated the creation of a new Sunni identity, just the way that Al Jazeera had initially created a new pan-Arab solidarity um, throughout the Middle East. So too did Al Jazeera and other channels subsequently create a new Sunni identity. And Al Jazeera went from being the voice of Arab nationalism to being basically the voice of Al Qaeda in the way it's in, in the last uh, four years or so. So Syria didn't happen in a vacuum. The population had changed in part thanks to Iraq. Obviously, there were deep tensions going back decades in Syria for a variety of reasons. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood, the um, French occupation, the nature of the dictatorship. But the Syrian regime itself was very aware that its own population, Sunni population, had changed in part because of what was happening throughout the region because of Iraq. They were becoming more Salafi, more sectarian. And there was this constant fear in Syria among Sunnis of Shiaization. Um, my first demonstration in, in Syria I visited in June 2011, people told me the reason they had risen up against the regime was Shiaization. And I haven't been able to find all these years anybody that converted to Shiaism, but it was, it's a real and palpable fear that people had in Syria and elsewhere in the region. Um, and Turkey and Qatar very early on told Assad that if you accept a certain amount of Sunni Islamists as a government, they will make sure the uprising stops. That only convinced the government in Syria even further that there is an actual conspiracy, a Sunni Islamist conspiracy against it. So they responded even more harshly. And obviously their counterinsurgency campaign has been especially brutal. And uh, it drove people against the regime and Gulf money came in and further radicalized them, especially because only a certain kind of insurgent was, was going to get money, one with a beard, with Islamic slogans. Um, now this fear of Shiaization, I don't know exactly where it came from, but uh, some of it is tied to the flow of Iraqi refugees, Shia refugees, into Syria. They were much more conspicuous in their practice of Shia traditions, and Shias felt empowered and more 
Confident in practicing the traditions, Ashura, Arbaeen, and visiting Sayyidah Zainab and Sayyidah Rukhaya, and many of them, of course, were living in, in Syria. So you, Syrian Sunnis, suddenly saw Shias for the first time, because before the war, you had like 1% Shia population. So all these uh, women in black and guys beating themselves and crying, it just offended Sunnis in the Umayyad capital, and they began to convince themselves that there was some kind of mass conversion going on. Now, it's wrong to think of Sunnis as some kind of monolithic group, the way the U.S. government often does. To be a sect, you need to have some kind of coherence with centers of power, somebody speaking on your behalf. Shias have that. They have Khomeini, Sadr, Sistani. They have known centers in Najaf and Qom. But when we say Sunni, what do we even mean? The way the term is used in policy debates these days, it often sounds as though only the Saudis have been allowed to define what it means to be Sunni. And as Sunnis are being mass converted to Wahhabism. Even though Sunnis have been a constant changing animal, just like Shias and, and all other sects and, and other communities in the region and in the world. Um, now, who speaks on behalf of Sunnis? There are so many kinds, so nobody can. You have Sunni Kurds, tribal Arabs, city people, Bedouins, villagers. You can't make Sunnism into a political, politically active notion. If you do, you get Al Qaeda, which is what's happened in Syria, among other places. Um, now, many Syrian insurgents, as well as their foreign backers, claim to be fighting on behalf of Sunnis. Early in the uprising, um, I had a lot of Syrian opposition activist friends, and they changed their Facebook religion status from Muslim to Sunni. And they began to talk more and more about this war against Sunnis, an American-Iranian war against Sunnis. Because they were dissatisfied with the amount of aid the Americans were giving the Syrian uprising, even though it's probably been the best aided uprising in the history of the world. Now, before 2003, I think it would have been inconceivable to promote all these primordial and sectarian identities. But it all goes back to, uh, to Iraq and that shock. In the past, in the Middle East, cities had a state-sponsored Islam that was involved in the law and was moderate and was tolerant. Sunnis were Hanafi in the city only. But in the countryside, you had eclectic practices and Sufis and Alawis, uh, Shias. Hanafization took place because it was originally elites in, in the Ottoman Empire, and maybe because you didn't have to be Arab to be in uh, the Khilafah. Uh, but it was a religion of empire. Now there's no state reproducing Hanafi or, or Ashari institutions. There's no reason to be Hanafi. There's no more traditional Islam of the state. So Sunnis went from being just from, from being the Ummah to just being a sect. And they haven't really recovered from that shock in many places. And only state actively pr promoting Islamic education throughout the world is the Saudis. So Salafism, in a way, has become the new religion of empire. And it's very dangerous. From Mali to Indonesia, we see uh, so the Salafization of Sunnis more and more. There's even a phenomenon of secular Salafis, which is Sunnis who are secular, but have accepted the Salafi or Wahhabi definition of what it means to be Sunni, what it means to be Shia, as if it's an ethnic group. Um, the Saudis have claimed the mantle, the Sunni mantle, uh, so the U.S. government sees them as a representative of Sunnis. But this hasn't been accepted by the majority of other Sunni Arab countries, whether in North Africa or, or, uh, or uh, Sudan or, or elsewhere. But more and more we hear U.S. government officials and American journalists speaking as if when they say Sunni world, they can only mean the Gulf monarchies. And leading Sunni theologians in the Arab world have condemned ISIS, but not as un-Islamic, just they've gone too far, the timing is wrong, they're applying the rules excessively, um, but we haven't seen it sort of uh, by the institutions of Azhar or elsewhere um, declared so un-Islamic. Even though the main victims of ISIS and such salivization are Sunnis themselves. Sunni elites are being killed, majority Sunni cities have been wiped out, never to be rebuilt again. Millions and millions of Sunnis have been displaced, never to return to their homes again, in Iraq and in Syria especially. And this is also a very dangerous phenomenon. We have millions and millions of people who happen to be Sunni from Syria and Iraq especially, who have fled to Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, Sweden, Germany, 
And many of them are living kind of a Palestinian revolutionary existence where they're going to schools, if, if they even are lucky enough to go to schools, that perpetuate this notion that we're going to come home, we're going to um, defeat the government in Iraq, defeat the government in Syria. This revolutionary identity, Islamic revolutionary identity, is being preserved, much like we see Palestinians in camps in Lebanon um, still maintaining that same identity. Um, the Sunni public has no framework, and this is a result of the failure of the state in the Arab world. In the 90s, Iraq, after all of the sanctions and devastations, Iraqi Shias were organized by clerics like Muhammad Sadiq Sadr, uh, Houthis elsewhere organized by, organized the Zaydis um, to, into a national project in South Lebanon. You had Musa Sadr, you had Hezbollah organizing Shias, um, likewise with Christians, with Druze and others. But when states in the Middle East weakened, Sunnis were left with no alternative because they had embraced the state. They believed they were the state. And, and so the failure of the nationalist project and the defeat of the leftists, Sunnis who identified with the states uh, who, thought of, uh, who thought of themselves merely as Arab Muslim, were left with nothing. And there is no Sunni project that isn't Al-Qaeda or ISIS, ultimately. And their leaders and elites were bought off by the Saudis. You can see this in the case of the Mujahifis in Iraq and other prominent Iraqi and Syrian Sunni leaders. They basically sold themselves out to the Gulf and betrayed the interests of their followers and ultimately fled to exile, leaving their people ruled by ISIS. This happened both in Syria and, and in Iraq. Uh, even in Lebanon, we see a very weak Sunni leadership. While Shias in Lebanon, for example, have been much less affected by the weakness of the state. They have a strong military power, Hezbollah, to protect them and organize them in a vibrant political community as well. Um, Sunnis so haven't been able to, to produce some kind of alternative intellectual discourse. And that movement built around the idea of Sunnism, as is the, the foreign-backed Syrian opposition and the insurgency, and as are some of the Iraqi Sunni leaders, will just create a region that's going to be inherently radical and extreme, and eventually get taken over by the real representatives of the notion of, of this of Sunnism, which is Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, or whatever is going to succeed them in the future. Um, because Islamic State is the Sunni army. You can't get more Sunni than the Islamic State. Um, this is one of the very dangerous things the U.S. is promoting when they're trying to find um, the Sunni army that can fight the Islamic State. And I'm simplifying things because I'm an academic, but ultimately um, it's a more muscular, aggressive group waving the Sunni flag isn't going to be found other than ISIS. Um, and five minutes? Sorry. Um, so instead of supporting a Sunni force against the Islamic State, the U.S. should have been, if it's going to be supporting anything at all, supporting national institutions, uh, uh, pan-sectarian institutions, national forces. Saddam Hussein didn't need a Sunni force to hold Sunni-majority areas of Iraq. Hafez and Bashar al-Assad didn't need Sunni policemen to police majority Sunni areas of Syria. This is a very new and dangerous notion that the U.S. is promoting now. Um, as is the notion that Syria is like an Alawi dictatorship ruling an oppressed and, and aggrieved Sunni majority, even though the government and the regime are thoroughly uh, populated by Sunnis, the head of national security, Ali Mamluk is Sunni, Deep Zaytun, the head of state security is Sunni, the Minister of Defense is Sunni, the Minister of Interior is Sunni, um, top Air Force intelligence and, and generals uh, are Sunni, the almost entire Ba'ath party is Sunni. The Syrian regime is corrupt, it's brutal, it's all kinds of terrible things, but it's not a sectarian regime ruling an oppressed Sunni majority. The, the, the conflict is far more complex than that, but we've really simplified things here in the U.S. and further exacerbated the, the sectarianism in Syria. The same arguments are made about the Kurds, who have successfully fought ISIS as well. Um, they're not Sunni enough because they're Kurdish. So to, basically, to be Sunni means you have to be somehow radical and extreme and, and angry and aggrieved. So any Sunni who is pro-Syrian regime, who, who cooperates with the Iraqi government, who, who belongs to the majority Sunni Syrian army, 
or, or even to the Sunni PMF groups who are fighting ISIS in Iraq, they're not Sunni enough to be supported by the U.S. Um, guess I'll skip it a bit. Now, I've focused on the changes to Sunni identity, but obviously the Sunnis aren't the only ones who changed as a result of this American asteroid. Uh, in fact, all sects, in part as a response to Sunni attacks by Sunni extremists, Shias in Iraq also changed significantly. They became becoming more aggressive and more violent, establishing militias, demonizing Sunnis as Nawasib sometimes. Uh, they developed their own uh, violent rhetoric. Even the 1% of Syrians who are Shias, likewise, have become extremely anti-Sunni. Um, and Shias went from viewing themselves like as a weak, oppressed, aggrieved minority to almost like a muscular majority sense, uh, and dangerously so, in fact, and arrogantly so in, in many cases. Now, in Iraq, this makes sense because the Iraqi Shia is a majority, and they seized the state from very early on, and they really put the Shia imprimatur on everything in Iraq, every police cover, uh, military vehicles, checkpoints, ministries. From day one, it is covered with Shia banners and, and Shia murals and Shia posters and Shia music inside. Um, it's a bad analogy, but it's almost like the Jewish symbols in Israel. Um, now, just as those are offensive to non-Jews in Israel, for Sunnis, they've almost come to feel alien in, in their own country as a result of this in-your-face Shiism everywhere they go. Um, and Hezbollah was infuriated by the betrayal of the Bahrain uprising. And they viewed it as sectarian. And Iraqi Shias were mobilized on behalf of Bahrain. Um, as I saw in the demonstrations in 2011 in the Iraqi parliament, almost that. Um, and Hezbollah's support for the Syrian regime was the final blow to sectarian relations in the region for decades. Now, <laughs> um, Hezbollah believes it's fighting in Syria. It's not a George Bush sense. So fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. That is a war. It's an existential war against the theories. But what's happened is that Hezbollah now views it, uh, the Saudis as more dangerous in Israel. It views the Yemenis as greater victims than the Palestinians. And it views it as more honorable to die fighting the Wahhabis with the theories than it is honorable to die fighting against Israel. So they've changed significantly in who they view as their main enemy these days. Um, and then we see their policy in Madaya, in Zabadani. For the first time, Hezbollah has embraced an openly sectarian logic where it's surrounding and punishing Sunni towns in order to obtain uh, security or assistance for, Shia, for Shias in the towns in Idlib, um, in Pua and Faria. And they prioritize defending Shias in Aleppo, uh, Nubal and Zahra. So Hezbollah has embraced a much more explicit sectarian rhetoric as well. Um, now, all this, in fact, the Christians and Druze have their own religious too. The last uh, point I want to make is there are, of course, many examples of pan sectarian institutions. Uh, the armies in, in Iraq and Syria still, they're often still mixed. You have Sunnis joining Shia militias in Iraq. Um, there's a lot of coexistence which is still taking place. But I think we're still in the early stages of the new era that began as a result of this. Um, American impact on the region. And in a way, my NGO, all the various interventions that take place in the Middle East kind of halted the Darwinian process, which maybe had to take place, of winners and losers emerging and a new order being created, just as was created in modern Europe following decades or centuries of, of war.